welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. So, in the TV show Parks and Recreation, there is uh, a cult in the small town in Pawnee, Indiana. And this cult worships a lizard god who they will believe will consume everyone with fire, and they play flutes to appease their lizard god. Uh, this cult was created by an office uh, supply salesman, and the name of this cult in the TV show is The Reasonableist. The people who follow the lizard god and play flutes to appease them, him call themselves The Reasonableist. And somebody asked, why if they believe something so wild and crazy. Why, if they believe something so outlandish, do they call themselves the reasonableist? And the response in the show is, well, how would you like to oppose somebody who's just being reasonable? You wouldn't, right? You do, no, nobody, nobody would argue with somebody who calls themselves a re... I'm just, I'm just being the reasonableist, right? And so we all have this desire in ourselves to be rational. Right? This is something in our culture that is baked into us, that is hardwired into us. We all want to be rational. Because what's the opposite of being rational? Some of you might say it's being irrational, and you'd be accurate in saying that. But let's use another word. What's the word we more commonly use for somebody who's not being rational? They're crazy, right? Absolutely. If somebody is not being rational they're crazy. Which is something in our culture that we absolutely hold true. What, what's the thing that you want somebody else, when you're talking to somebody else, when you're trying to communicate your position, what's the thing that you want to hear them say more than anything else? Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I can see what you're saying. I can see what you are telling me. And that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I, I have accomplished what I came to accomplish. What I said made sense. What's the, what's the fear that when we're talking to something about somebody important, talking to somebody about something important, that they'll say to us, "That makes no sense," right? If you are a parent, this is something you say several times a day, right? You look at your children after they have told you a story, and you say, "That makes no sense." That's a very polite way of saying. That's crazy. Because our culture is hardwired. It is the air we breathe that we want to be rational. That we want everything that we do to be provable in sort of a concrete and organic way. Well, for those of us who are Christians, this can become a little bit tricky, right? Because faith does not work on the same playing field as rationality. It's not exactly the same. And yet, even as Christians, what do we want to do? We want to prove to everyone else around us that we're not crazy, right? I, this, this happens to me on a regular basis at Bandit. Uh, there are two guys. Uh, they both have the same name, and they're both very, very smart. Uh, one of them is a marine biologist. The other sits around reading, like, Latin histories from the 900s, 
right? Like as it's like pleasure reading. Like I'm going to go to the coffee shop and read a history of Charlemagne's empire and have a cup of coffee just to chill out this morning, right? And every time I see these guys, because I'm a bandit far more than somebody who's not being paid to be there should be, every time I see them, I, want, I have this, this desire in me to prove to them, I'm, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm not crazy. I'm a Christian, but, but what I believe is just as rational in a way as your marine biology textbook or as, or as your history of Charlemagne's empire. I, I'm not crazy. And so we want really badly to prove that we're rational. The hard part about our lives as well is this. As much as we hold rationality, reason, logic up as the gold standard in our culture, does everything fall into those categories of reason and logic? It doesn't, right? We intrinsically know that there is there are things in our life that don't quite fit in to that rubric. I mean, think about your desires. Most of us have things that we want that we can't explain why we want them. We just want those things. They sort of defy logic. Oftentimes, love defies logic. Or to put it another way, love makes us crazy. Right? Most of us can point to something in our life where we have done something completely irrational, completely illogical, for love. And in fact, the odd part about our culture that holds up rationality so high also holds up doing irrational things for love, right? The entire romantic comedy movie industry is built on this premise. Do something irrational and illogical for love and you'll end up happy. It's the plot of every rom-com in the history of mankind. Tom Hanks made literally 17 movies in 1999 on this very theme. And so we have this tension between what is logical and rational and what we hold up to be those things. And yet we also have these things that we know are irrational and that we hold up as valuable as well. This morning, as we begin to uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 together, what we're going to see is Paul is pointing out just this same sort of contrast. The same sort of idea of what is rational, and can we know God with that sort of set of cultural tools. Because we often try to know God with the same rational toolbox that we use to know anything else. And when we do that, what we find is that our faith is often stalled in trying to know God with that same toolkit is futile. So what I want to do is read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to you this morning. We're going to stand up in just a second. I'm going to read it out loud. Um, if you would like, it will be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. It's also on our church app in the Bible program there. So if you would, stand with me. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along with me. The Apostle Paul said this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, whether we like it or not, our cultural training has given us a toolbox, a set of sort of mental structures that we engage everything else around us with. And these tools that we have, unfortunately, will never allow us to see God on our own. If we try to approach God the same way that we approach fantasy football, or our college studies, or any other sort of realm of things that we want to learn about and be good at, we are spinning our wheels in the sand. And so I want to show how Paul points out the ways that the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago was sort of stuck in their cultural ways of thinking. Because the interesting thing is, it is almost identical to us. If you look through the passage, what you begin to see is Paul characterized, in this passage he calls it oftentimes worldly wisdom. I think that's a word that sort of is strange to us. I think a good way of thinking about that, a way for us to wrap our heads around that is, is cultural wisdom. And Paul says, here's what culture, here's what the, the, everything around you, the things that you do, the things that your world around you creates and values, here's what it teaches you is how you can know things. It says, first of all, that cultural wisdom is temporary. He says that the wisdom of this world is temporary. And here's the thing about that. How much of our knowledge changes as we learn more and more, right? 
uh, in the 900s, well, let's go back, in the, the 600s, what would you call somebody who believed in the flat earth? Right? You would call them a scientist. If you met somebody today who believed that the earth was flat, what would you call them? You would call them a crazy person, right? Why? Because our understanding of things is bound by our time. How many years ago was it? It wasn't but a hundred years ago that, you know, a molecule was the smallest thing. And then, oh, no, no, it's an atom. Then it was a quirk. And then it I don't know, I don't know much science, but I think there's something smaller now. I'm not really sure. But, think, but, but knowledge, here's what I mean by this, and here's what Paul's saying. Knowledge changes with time. As we understand more and more about the world, things that we understand change. So there are things that we believe today that a hundred years from now, people are going to be like... <laughs> those crazy people, those crazy people thought that there was nine planets in the solar system. Ha! <laughs> what do they know? Our cultural understanding is always tied to the time that we live. And not only that, but it's, but it's a sensory understanding. The things that we believe, the toolbox that we have to understand the world around us is our five senses. What can I see? What can I observe? What can I hear? What can I taste? This is how I understand things around me. And if it doesn't exist, if we can't measure it with, those, with our five senses, then whatever it is must be crazy, right? Think about the, the crazy guy on the History Channel who's hunting ghosts, right? Or the guy that explains every mystery with aliens, right? Why, why do we laugh and giggle at those people? Because we know that that can't be true because the only things that are true are the things that we observe with our five senses. And our cultural wisdom also is limited to our own minds. Can you know what is truly in someone else's mind? No. You can't. Because guess what I can do? And guess what you can do? When you ask me what's going on in my mind, I can lie to you. I can lie. And you know what else? If you hook me up to a polygraph machine, I can still lie. And I can beat the polygraph machine. You cannot know what's going on in my mind. So the wisdom, the, the sort of ways of understanding that our culture gives us, they're tied to our time. They're tied to our senses. And they're tied to the fact that I can only truly know what's going on in my mind. And if this is the toolbox that we have, if this is the ways that we have to understand God, we will never get there. We will never be able to truly understand God. In fact, in this passage, what did Paul say? Paul says, to people who do not believe in God, it is folly. Right? And, and Paul, the way Paul writes the sentence, it's almost as if he is tweeting sad. Right? It's almost as if he is punctuating this passage with 
the, that one word sort of thing that we've gotten so used to seeing, right? People who try to approach God this way, dumb. Why? Because the way that we understand God is not in a way that is bound by time. It's not in a way that we can experience with our five senses. It's not in a way that is just isolated to our own mind. But what's really interesting is how often those of us who are Christians use this rubric, use this formula as the way that we approach God. Think about it this way. Think about the most spiritual person you know. The best Christian you know. Why are they the best Christian you know? My guess is because they, they do the right thing. They know the right theology. And they have sort of the right verses of the Bible memorized. What's interesting is the way that we approach our spirituality, even as Christians, is oftentimes bound by this same sort of set of what can I observe, what can I know, what can I do. But Paul is telling us that if we want to experience true change, if we want our lives to really be different, we have to begin to think a different way. We have to begin to approach God in a different way. Because knowledge and understanding God is not temporary. It's rooted in the fact that God is eternal. And that God has planned what happens in our life before all time. He said in the passage that He has decreed it before all time what's going to happen in our life. And not only is it not bound by time, but it's also spiritual, not sensory. The way that we grow is not necessarily by things that we can feel and taste and observe and apply the scientific method to. It's spiritual. And not only that, it's centered on something outside of our own mind. Outside of our own head which is the mind of Christ. You see, what Paul is saying is the way that our culture has taught us to know everything is a way that we can learn nothing about God. But rather, we have to begin to open our eyes and see God in a new way, with a different toolbox, with a different lens in our glasses, because we are naturally predisposed to try to see God according to what our culture tells us. And the difficulty with this is that culture obscures God. And not only does culture obscure God, but our own minds are bent by our brokenness. You see, when, when we... When we sin, what happens in our mind is that it is warped. Right? There's these reports that have been coming out over the past few days that the new iPhone, um, if you get the iPhone Plus, that like half of them are like bowing up and splitting in two. Right? I don't know why, again, 
don't ask me about science, but these iPhones are warping due to heat or something. And what happens is, when, when we make choices that run counter to the way that God has made us, it begins to warp us away from being able to understand God. And so we do this over and over again. And yet we can't experience God with this old way of knowing. So what do we do? If we're here, if you're here like me, and you kind of go, okay, great, but this is the only way of knowing that I know. This is my cultural toolbox. I don't have any... What do you want me to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that any way that we begin to know God will always begin with us opening ourselves up to needing the cross of Jesus Christ. If we start at any other point, our trajectory is going to be off. We must begin to approach God from knowing that we need the cross. Uh, the way that we often put this here at City Church is by knowing that we are broken. That we are messed up. And we have done messed up things. Sometimes people call this sin. That we are not who we know we ought to be and who God says we ought to be. But that because of the cross of Jesus, we are more forgiven and accepted and loved than we could possibly imagine. When we start with that as our starting point, when we start to understand God, not with our senses, but by starting with the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ, it begins to change us in some unique ways. Because what happens is, in our hearts, we begin to, instead of applying my senses to the Bible and saying, what is it that I believe? Instead of me standing over the Bible and saying, what do I think about this? I begin to stand underneath of it. Because I'm a sinner, because I'm broken, because I'm messed up, I need the Bible to tell me who I am. And so I stand underneath the Bible underneath what God has to say, instead of standing above it. Now this is nice, this is a very Christian thing to say, but in reality this is something terribly difficult. Because the Bible has some harsh words for all of us. If you read the Bible and you come away from it going, oh, well that was nice, you probably didn't read the Bible. If your understanding of the Bible never critiques you, never points out things that are messed up in you, you're probably not reading the Bible. Because when we look in the pages of Scripture, what we find is a mirror that's honest. And if we're honest about that mirror, it has something for all of us whether it's critiquing our self-righteousness or the ways that we break God's law, either one of those, we find ourselves underneath it. This is also why we need our lives to begin to be reformed. We need our lives to begin 
come underneath of another authority, another way of knowing. Incidentally, this is why we do some of the things we do here at City Church. This is one of the reasons why we say the creed together. It's because when we say the creed together, what we're training ourselves, what we're doing, is in a new and different spiritual way saying, this is my primary allegiance. My primary allegiance is not, dare I say, on a Sunday morning as we approach football games, my primary allegiance is not to a flag. My primary allegiance is to Jesus. And when we begin to be reformed with our allegiances, not to what our culture tells us our allegiances should be to, but rather, when Jesus does, I begin to know and experience God in a new way. Not only that, this is why we confess our sins each week together. Because by confessing our sins, what we're doing is combating the way that our culture tells us we should approach life. Because our culture tells us we should, um, we should one, have a performative righteousness, right? If if you're a a good native Saint Petersburg person, you should be able to. Here are the list of people you should regularly critique, right? Like like in our culture. If you don't critique this list of people, if you don't agree with this list of people, who even are you? And why are you even here? Right? We, our culture, both in St. Pete and across the world, is obsessed with virtue signaling. Is obsessed with me putting on my Facebook, putting on my Twitter, adding into my conversation, well, of course I hate all the right people to hate. Of course I'm not in support of all of the unpopular things that we're not supposed to support. And of course I have to tell you so that you know that I'm okay. We need to signal our virtues to everyone else around us. But when we come in confession, we're freed from a righteousness that comes from our performance. We're freed from having to signal and convince everybody that we're okay and we like all the right things and agree with all the right political positions. Because all of a sudden, I'm not living my life to perform. I'm not living my life to prove somebody else that I'm worthy, but rather I'm coming and admitting that I'm not. That I don't always believe the right thing. That I don't always do the right thing, even as a Christian. And so we are re And when we begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we begin to approach God in that way, we begin to see our lives reformed, and this passage tells us what we can expect from that. And the first thing it shows us is that we are going to see our lives begin to be changed. When we let the gospel of Jesus, the message of our brokenness and our acceptance of the ways that we are messed up and do messed up things, and yet His enduring love for us because of the cross, when that message settles in our heart and sinks into our heart, we begin to see that our lives look different. This is what Paul calls the power of God. And it's interesting because this is what Paul says is the real apologetic, the real way of showing other people what Christianity is all about. I cannot stand up here and prove to you that Christianity is true can't. First of all, because we're working with different toolboxes. Second of all, 
because it is not purely rational. But the place where our faith is shown to be true, the best, is in the ways that our lives are being changed into the image of Jesus. And we see that. Not only that, but we see that the expectations of our life are changed. Paul says, it is, you, you cannot see, you cannot hear, you cannot even imagine what God has in store for his people. You cannot, it would, like Paul may as well say, it would literally blow your mind, right? It would, it would make your head explode because you don't even know how to understand what God has planned for the people who love him. And lastly, he shows us that our outlook changes. He says that we, when we come under the Bible, when we start with the gospel, what happens to us is we begin to see people around us in a new way. He says that we have the mind of Christ. And what he's talking about there is the way that we begin to interact with people around us. All of a sudden, that guy in traffic who's honking at you, even though he's the jerk, we begin to see in a new way. That person in your office that bothers you to no end. That relationship that you just can't seem to fix or get right. Those desires that you can't, that you can't shake, that you don't know what to do with. All of these things we begin to see with the mind of Christ when we start with the gospel. And so Paul is telling us, do you want to experience God? Do you want to know what change in your life is like? It's not going to come simply by using your cultural toolbox and applying it to the Bible. It's going to come when you begin to start with the gospel and submit yourself to what God has to say about us, not what our cultural wisdom has to say about God. Let's pray.